expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. I'm Keith Manconi. Working as a foreign correspondent with the excitement and the travel, it's a dream job for many, maybe just short of astronaut or pastry chef. But today's guest is one of the few who has actually lived it as a Taiwan-based freelancer covering stories all over Asia. One problem, though, his start in journalism coincided with the collapse of print media, meaning that as he was busy making a career, the industry was busy just trying to stay afloat and slowly reinventing itself. Jonathan Adams saw the whole fiery mess from right here in Taiwan, and he wrote about the experience in his new book, Welcome Home Master, covering East Asia in the twilight of old media. I spoke with him recently. Jonathan Adams, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you came to Taiwan in 2004 as a stringer for Newsweek and uh, doing some copy editing work for the Taipei Times. Uh, and over, over several years, you managed to uh, put together you know, a good living as, as a freelancer, uh, working for a number of international publications. Um, uh, but I, and I hope this is uh, no spoiler for your book. Uh, you are not a foreign correspondent now. You're working uh, for the U.S. State Department, and and your book kind of goes into some of the frustrations uh, that you had with uh, kind of the whole industry and the constraints uh, that were on your work and things you could do and things you couldn't do. Uh, but I want to uh, back up to maybe the whole beginning. Um, mm-hmm. When you came here about a decade ago, uh, did Taiwan seem like a promising place to start a career in uh, international journalism? Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, I actually ended up coming to Taiwan on the recommendation of several people, including editors back in New York. I've uh, been working in Newsweek in New York at the time. And, you know, a lot of people said, look, um, Taiwan is an underreported story. There's a lot going on there. There's obviously the, the big cross-strait story that everybody's interested in, but also a big business story, uh, the high-tech industry uh, in Taiwan. Uh, and just a, a great place where you know people are friendly. It's easy to talk to. You don't have some of the limitations uh, in other places in Asia that you might have. Um, so absolutely, I thought it would, it's a great place not only to start freelancing and learning a little bit about this part of Asia, uh, but also for learning Mandarin Chinese, which was one of my goals. Right. But uh, one of the things that you write about uh, in the book is this term, uh, the Taiwan Ghetto. Uh, you had some colleagues that were warning you that uh, if if you got in too deep, you might just be associated as you know the Taiwan guy, <laughs> and people would think that you couldn't really cover anywhere else in the world. Uh, uh, but you know you stuck you stuck around despite that. Was there something here that was drawing you that made you want to cover this for a long period of time? Well, actually, yeah, the Taiwan ghetto uh, reference that I put in the book was from uh, I believe after I'd been here for a year uh, covering um, uh, news from Taiwan. I went back to New York to kind of check in with my editors there. And actually, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because that comment really reflects kind of the old media mentality um, of an organization, a big magazine like Newsweek. Um, because the way it used to be done was, you know, you might get your start in a place like Taiwan, but it, there was a lot more mobility than within an organization like Newsweek. Uh, you were then um, kind of expected, uh, if you were ambitious, to move on to a bigger bureau. Um, for example, one of my predecessors at Newsweek, who was a stringer in Taiwan, went on to become Beijing bureau chief, then Tokyo bureau chief, and finally Hong Kong bureau chief. You know, all his uh, housing was subsidized, a uh, mm-hmm. really nice package. They took um, care of him. They took care of him. And, you know, these were uh, um, 
very competitive jobs. Mm-hmm. The, wasn't easy. I'm not in any way suggesting it was easy in in those days to get those jobs, but it was a different mentality. So that comment really was indicative of that. Um, there was a feeling: don't stay in one place too long. You need to move around um, to be successful. Uh, and I think with the whole change to this sort of new media model, uh, that's one of the things that that's really changed. That old model of moving around from bureau to bureau is. Um, doesn't really exist anymore. Or it's, it happens a lot less frequently. Hmm. And uh, you know, during your reporting work, you did work in China for a little bit. Uh, you, you definitely filed a lot of stories from Beijing and other parts of China. Uh, but I, I think the bulk of your work was was writing stories about Taiwan. So uh, was there something? And 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 you cover in your book that you know there was more demand for a lot of those stories out of Beijing. Uh, but you know, you were still trying to sell Taiwan stories. Uh, so was there something about Taiwan that kept you coming back? Yeah, well, I, I think um, eventually it was the kind of freelancing opportunities I had that uh, kept me here. Um, I had uh, worked for a summer at the Newsweek Bureau in Beijing, and that's kind of what you're referring to, just this uh, this you know, night and day change from the attitude of ed- editors in New York. China was hot. China's sexy. We can't get enough China. Please send us stories. I had more than I could do um, in a very small bureau in Beijing. Filing from Taiwan, on the other hand, is like, well, you know, sort of uh, had to work seen to as sell a marginal. It. Mm-hmm. I had to work to sell it. So uh, I think if that had continued, yeah, that obviously was a frustration. There was very little, uh, you know, as they said, real estate in the in the magazine to begin with. Uh, my primary employer was Newsweek at that time. Um, it's hard to get uh, mention of a place like Taiwan into uh, Newsweek. So that would have become more and more frustrating. So what kept me here was really the opportunity to freelance for other um, uh papers and uh, media outlets, a variety of them. I did Christian Science Monitor, a little bit for International Herald Tribune. Um, but the one that really, I think, kept me here and got me uh, into doing the stories that I was most interested in doing was Global Post. So uh, this was a um, new internet-only uh, website that was focused on global news for an American audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was one of the first uh, the first employer I had as a freelancer that to me, really got it, mm-hmm. understood the uh, dramatic impact that the internet was having on print and magazine media in particular, mm-hmm. on newspaper and magazine media, and was adapting to that mm-hmm. with an uh, internet-only website. Um, and this was just a fantastic opportunity, uh, and it kept me, I think, going here. Uh, and actually, not only kept me going, but I think that when I look back, those were the uh, my fondest days, as I recall them, as a, as a journalist here, because I could really write about anything. Mm. Um, they were open to everything from politics, economics, culture, arts, uh, the whole gamut. Mm. Uh, and they wanted something different um, every week. So uh, as I say in the book, I was kind of off the leash. That's how I felt like um, before in the old media model, particularly with a place like Newsweek, constantly have to constantly have to think of how does it relate to the big news? How do you play off the big news? You can't write about something. very difficult to write about something unless there's a news peg, as they mm-hmm. called it. Um, and it was also very difficult to write something that didn't kind of fit into the the very specific for- writing formulas that mm. a publication like Newsweek had. So Global Post is wide open, right? Uh, and yeah, and you also wrote about uh, you know beyond uh, just the format there. The, 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 another frame that they kind of imposed was 
uh, what you call the country frame that every country kind of faces. There's only a certain kind of con- uh, a kind of story that editors are looking from for for any given country. And for Taiwan, you say right. most of what it is is tech industry stuff mm-hmm. or cross strait stuff. We want to know, right. you know, are things heating, heating up in the cross strait? Right. How's our tech industry stuff doing? If it's uh, something that doesn't fall into that, people aren't really interested. Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely right. That's a comment that I actually heard in grad school from. Uh, it was then an international editor for the Associated Press. Uh, used that phrase in one of his lectures to us, and it really stuck with me. Um, he called it uh, breaking the frame. And he used that phrase to describe what he thought the uh, mark of a good foreign correspondent was. Um, and it's not easy to do, but he talked about how every country you report in has a narrative that um, people get kind of fixated on. Um, and for Taiwan, for example, there's always a concern, uh, is Taiwan going to declare independence? Are they going to start some kind of war between uh, the U.S. and China? Um once you actually get here, you tend to find out a lot of those narratives are exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are kind of too often repeated. And so this uh, this AP editor really suggested, you know, what you really need, the mark of, a, of excelling as a correspondent is to try to break that frame. Get out of that narrative, um, uh, pursue other narratives, other kinds of stories um, that are people aren't as used to hearing. Mm. Uh, and so I really try to keep that in mind, um, uh, particularly when I had the freedom to do so I'm working for um, other publications like Global Post. What would you point to as a couple of, of examples of stories that you managed to cover that kind of broke that frame? Um, one of them, I would say, I did a long project uh, right before I left Taiwan on the uh, the uh, Shija Trio. Uh, this was a death penalty case, um, uh, double murder from 1991. Uh, and it was an ongoing case. It's not something that I could have written about for a publication like Newsweek. Uh, there was no news peg. Um, you know, uh but I wanted to spend the time to do kind of what some people call longitudinal reporting, uh, look at the same people and go back and follow the same case over months. So I think it was at least, I don't remember, seven or eight-month process where they were having these hearings. <clears throat> I was doing other projects uh, along the way, of course, but I was followed this case. Uh, I got to know uh, some of the lawyers associated with the case, some of the uh, civil society groups that were also associated with and I met the uh, Shija three themselves, uh, including uh, Su Jenha, who is really the most, um, probably the most outspoken and vocal of the three. And this is just uh, incredible story, um, incredible human drama. Um, you know, this was he described to me how he had basically lived through years of facing death, uh, facing the death penalty. Um, including a short period of time when the literally the the order could have come down any day. Mm. Um, and so just listening to talk about this and talk about how, you know, talk very matter-of-factly about how this changed his views toward the death penalty, saying hey, this could happen to anybody. Uh, and then how he said, you know, it really is it, it very moving, really stuck mm. with me. He said, you know, he had basically a negotiation with God. Mm-hmm. Um in those, particularly in those days when uh, the the execution order could come any morning, mm. he said, "You know, look, if you if I survive this, I'm going to dedicate uh, my life and career to human rights causes mm. and human rights issues." Um, so that story and following that story as uh, you know, not only just kind of uh, very personally rewarding. Um, uh, these people, I thought, or the defense lawyer team was really impressive. Um, but I thought it also really illustrated something about Taiwan that was um, worth kind of exploring. And it was really about – to me, it was – it really showed one of the ways that Taiwan's civil society plays such an important role 
uh, particularly uh, since the days of uh, you know post-martial law era and going to democratization. Uh, because what you had with these defense lawyers and all these civil society groups who had come together to really behind uh, these three, and they were a cause. Um, and I think that's something that you know, when you talk about kind of going back to the idea of breaking the frame, it's not as sexy a topic perhaps as uh, cross-strait war. Mm. Um, but the incredibly important role and this incredibly important vibrant civil society in Taiwan – as kind of really an engine of social development and political development here, I think is is really one of the real stories of what's happening here. Right, that kind of the development of a very still a very young democracy and 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 the course that that's taking uh, was something that you uh, focused on uh, a lot in your reporting. What, what do you think? Uh, what kind of an impact were you hoping for this to have uh, for a foreign reader? I mean, when they when they came across this. Uh, you know, these seemingly very local story, uh, perhaps only familiar to uh, Taiwanese folks. What were you hoping for them to take away from reading that? Well, you know, I guess I say I would say that when I was working on a project like that, I I wasn't really thinking in those terms. Mm. I'd say I mean I was really just trying to tell a story, thinking of how to craft a lot of material into hopefully a readable narrative. Um. But I guess you know ultimately it's just your hope to that the reader will be left with a better understanding of what makes a place like Taiwan tick. Um, what are the important uh, um, social institutions? What are the important trends? Um, what makes this place different than others? And then also what are the commonalities? Because um, I think there are – you really do learn a lot in sort of this comparative uh, – comparing how Taiwan system has developed – with some of the very similar issues in the United States, for example, I mentioned briefly in that in that long story, um, the Innocence Project in the United States, and how they've uh, shown uh, you know great numbers of people through DNA evidence they've been able to show that they were wrongly convicted, mm. uh, and in many cases even put to death. So it's a similar set of issues that are faced by countries around the world. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think you know uh, um, some of the editors I really respected and um, had. We really had a sense that, and they were trying to encourage you not to think of you know these different countries as little boxes that you mm. kind of don't interact much, and you just report on this box over here and that. Instead, think of more broader themes. Um, we tried to do that a little bit in some of the Newsweek reporting, uh, cutting across Southeast Asia, uh, and also reporting from Taiwan on various social issues. Mm. Um, and I thought that that was one of the more interesting approaches. Um, you don't want to get stuck in this. Again, this mentality of you're kind of just reporting on this little box right. here. This geographic segmentation. You know, there's these countries have more in common than we maybe think they would. Just uh, switching gears uh, just a little bit. Uh, so one of the things that your book goes into is uh, the way that the industry is changing and how it's becoming uh, more and more difficult maybe to find uh, steady work as uh, an international journalist. Uh, but you know, there's there's still international journalism going on. Uh, we still see a fair amount of that happening. So, what exactly is changing? What 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 are we losing? What is the old model that's going away, uh, and what is it maybe being replaced with? Right. Well, I think the you know the change in being a foreign correspondent is really just a piece of a much broader story and trend, and that is the uh, dramatic disruption of the particularly the magazine and newspaper industries by the internet. Their old advertising-based business model simply doesn't work anymore. Mm. Um, so it's a piece of that story. Uh, when I wrote this book, I went back and took a look at the state of the media reports that are published by the Pointer Institute 
In 2014, they actually put a number for the first time on what effect this disruption had had on uh, newspaper and magazine jobs. They counted 54,000 jobs lost between 2003 and 2013. Happened to be about the exact same time period of when I was a foreign correspondent based in Taiwan. Um, they tried to say there's sort of a silver lining. There are 5,000 new jobs created in new media sites mm. like uh, Huffington Post, Global Post, BuzzFeed. Um, but that's it kind of tells a story itself of the dramatic change is really internal to the industry. Mm-hmm. It's about the lack of a viable career path and just mm-hmm. fewer jobs. Mm. So if I'm a if I'm a consumer of media, maybe I, I'm not so worried about all these journalists losing their jobs, but uh, maybe I'm, I'm I, I am more worried about the fact that the the kind of coverage that I can expect to get is uh, probably changing. Uh, what would you say to that set of readers? Uh, what is going to be changing for them? What what kind of coverage uh, should they be expecting? Yeah, well, I talk about this a little bit in the conclusion to my book. I don't see it as you know all a negative story. Um, you know that oh, somehow now we're not going to be able to understand other countries or foreign affairs at a time when we most need it, age of globalization, and so on. Um, I think there's certainly until that people can find a new business model. Um, there will be fewer jobs. But as a consumer of international news, I think you also have more diversity than ever. Mm. There is more. There are more people than ever writing. It's all available on the internet, uh, both foreigners coming to a place like Taiwan, but also locals mm-hmm. um, writing about their place, uh, writing about their own countries and their own issues that they care about. Um, one way I would put it is I think for a correspondent now you have – more freedom, but less impact. Mm. Uh, and the more freedom now, again, it's it's sort of almost the blog mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a blogger, you can write about anything. There are some paid jobs, so like the one I had uh, for Global Post, where you have you're able to write about things that would never have fit into the old media narratives or a, a publication like Newsweek. But less impact. Right. Uh, in the old days of old media, mm-hmm. you were kind of had a megaphone. Right. Um, you could speak authoritatively about the big news uh, in a place like Taiwan. Now there's just this cacophony of voices, so many diverse voices on the internet, it's hard to be heard. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of blogs. A lot of blogs and, uh, and just a lot of outlets out there. But then I, 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 maybe this would be interesting for some of our listeners, you know, uh, who, who are interested in journalism. I mean, the barrier for entry is, is lower and uh, you, can get, you can get involved a lot more easily. You can be a part of this international coverage. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in some ways, you know, when I talk about uh, there being less jobs, it, it depends on how you look at it. Yes, there, there are less stable jobs that enable you to support a family, right. for example. Give you uh, perks. Give you perks, you know, help you with your housing, mm-hmm. help set you up in a place. Uh, fewer comfortable jobs uh, and fewer jobs with mobility throughout the organization mm-hmm. like the old Newsweek model. But there are actually more opportunities if you're that 20-something, or in my case, I was a 30-something, I'm mm-hmm. doing it from Taiwan, and you're not uh, so concerned about making a lot of money, uh, maybe you don't have to worry about supporting a family. If you have that flexibility, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. Uh, it's easier now to pick up stakes, just move to a foreign country um, and start to get to know the place, start pitching stories while maybe working other part-time jobs. Uh, this is something that you can do uh, much more easily now. And I want to just, uh, maybe this is taking things in t- too much of a philosophical direction, I don't know, but uh, when we just think about the impact that this kind of journalism has, uh, I want to look at this from, from two sides, both from you know the perspective of uh, people living in Taiwan and, 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 and on the side of the consumers. 
what, what do you think is the impact of, of the kind of work that you were doing and the kind of work that you're hoping, uh, you know, journalists working in this new media model will do? You know, what, what difference does this make uh, for the people that are reading it and for the, the people that are being covered? Does it, does it make any difference for folks in Taiwan if uh, people in America have a, a better understanding of, you know, a trial that's going on or some festival that's going on? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I always struggle with this. You know, uh, one thing I talk about in the book is this this constant sense that we never knew who our readers were mm-hmm. uh, in many cases, uh, what impact they were having. Um, that changed a little bit with, you know, comments uh, through the Internet, but most comments on your <laughs> typical story. You get a little strident. <laughs> you know, or not very enlightening or right. um, necessarily very interesting, the, the type of people who tend to comment. So, and I don't think it was necessarily representative mm-hmm. uh, view of people who are actually reading your story. So very hard to tell. You know, I mean, that's one thing you struggle with. I think for me as a foreign correspondent, I just I just focused on doing my job, trying to tell a story, mm. and and I had a great time doing it, particularly with the the feature writing, which I most enjoyed. Um, but you would hope that uh, you know, again, we do have this vast reservoir of information now. Many of my stories, not all of them, uh, are still on the internet can still be found um, by people who proactively have an interest in right. Taiwan. I think it's more about that now. It's it's the students back in the United States or, or elsewhere who's doing a pro- trying to find out more about Taiwan. And uh, one of them might stumble across maybe an article I wrote or one of my colleagues wrote and hopefully um, you know get a better understanding of somebody who's on the ground here from somebody who's on the ground here about, uh, about this place. Um, so, yeah, you hope – that uh, that some of this will have an impact. I think the reality is that was one of the frustrations I had, mm-hmm. um, and it's like you know, it is one of the um, perhaps uh, drawbacks of new media. I think there's so there's such a cacophony of voices now. There's so much on the internet. There's so many people blogging. It's hard to sort. There's sort. Yeah, it's it's again uh, uh, the old days. It used to that were not necessarily better, but in this way, in respect, you know, you had like a megaphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could really be heard as a correspondent, authoritatively speaking, mm-hmm. or in theory, authoritatively speaking, right. uh, about a place. And there's simply too many voices now. You're drowned out. It's yeah. very hard to be heard. So, again, I think it's not so much about one correspondent or uh, writer having an impact, but you're just contributing to the conversation. And I think uh, hopefully it's of some value, particularly those people who are out there proactively looking for information on a place like Taiwan. All right. Well, uh, we'll have to continue uh, to seeing how all this coverage goes. Uh, we've been speaking today to Jonathan Adams. The book is Welcome Home Master, covering East Asia in the twilight of old media. It is available on Camphor Press now. Uh, Jonathan Adams, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you very much for having me. You can learn more about the book at camphorpress.com. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. For Taiwan Talk, I'm Keith Manconi.